I'm here with Steve McIntosh, author of Evolution's Purpose and Integral Consciousness. Um, I figured we can just have an informal chat and dialogue. We're here in New York City um, and in this beautiful um, weekday morning where it's just a great sky, great weather. It's a little chilly out, but it's, it's nice. Yeah. Um, so I guess to start off, um, Evolution's Purpose, normally in like mainstream you know, discussions on evolution, there isn't really talk of a purpose for evolution. So sure. I'm wondering if you could set the stage for Absolutely, why yeah. evolution is Yeah, well, indeed, one of the great breakthroughs of uh, Darwin's discovery of the mechanism of natural selection is that it works without any intervention or without any purpose. Mm-hmm. It, it uh, uh, you know, of course, there's random mutations in the genome, and then those are selected for fitness by a changing environment. Mm-hmm. And there's a sort of a genius in the just sort of the natural mechanistic unfolding of it. Mm-hmm. And in evolution's first purpose, I don't argue with Darwin or his theory of natural selection, mm-hmm. uh, but I do take a broader view of evolution and see it from a higher resolution. Mm-hmm. And um, I can say that that it's uncontroversial to recognize that there's certainly purpose in the universe, right? Yeah. All life has purpose, mm-hmm. and, and even the most primitive forms of uh, uh, you know, bacteria will swim in a towards glucose gradient, <laughs> right, toward the glucose. And even though we may recognize that uh, these these early forms of life um, uh, are are genetically pre-programmed and largely automatic, mm-hmm. uh, they are what um, uh, biologist uh, Stuart Kaufman calls minimal molecular agents. Hmm. That is, the difference between non-life and life uh, is hard to pin down, right? There have been definitions of life that, that have been criticized as being just as applicable to a thermostat, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but the thing that distinguishes life, the thing which emerges with life, which can arguably be referred to as almost like a new law of physics, is this uh, striving to survive and mm. reproduce, which all life forms show. And, of course, as life forms evolve, purpose quickens and becomes more complex. So not just surviving and reproducing, but care of offspring and uh, you know, sexual selection uh, of, of uh, mates are other forms of, uh, of purpose, which, which animals show. Mm. Then with the emergence of humans, a whole new level of purpose comes into the universe. You know, animals may have purposes, but humans have purposes for their purposes. Mm-hmm. And they can have world-changing purposes and purposes that require more than a lifetime to fulfill. And so if we can see that one of the main things that distinguishes life from matter is the emergence of purpose, similarly, one of the main things that distinguishes humanity from the rest of life is this freedom of purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, um, human needs or purposes can never be completely fulfilled. As soon as, you know, animal needs can be relatively fulfilled. But, mm-hmm. it, but when humans fulfill one level of needs, they awaken to a new horizon of a whole new level of needs. Mm-hmm. And that's a kind of a, a marker of, of the freedom of the will, the freedom of choice, that keeps cultural evolution from expanding. You know, that's mm-hmm. another significant difference between um, animals and humans, is that while animal culture exists, and while it certainly has evolved somewhat, Mm-hmm. It doesn't evolve in an open-ended way that leads to, you know, global civilization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and certainly humanity does. And, and uh, you know, in the book I talk about why that is the case. But to just bring it back to your original question, uh, there is purpose. And mm-hmm. it, it's not just epiphenomenal. Um, and as I say in the book, 
the, the purpose of evolution is not pre-planned or externally controlled. It arises from within evolution itself. And as evolution um, progresses, which is another argument you know, that I make, mm -hmm. uh, the, the purposes of evolution become more and more evident. Because to be human is to know what it feels like to be evolution happening. Um, in the sense that we can, the, 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 the evolutionary impulse that we feel uh, to live up to our potential, mm. um, to improve our lives, to help others, to be compassionate, you know, those same feelings that, that, that animate us, uh, I argue, are the same, are, are, gives us a direct experiential phenomenological connection yeah. to uh, the forces that are, that are um, giving rise to the universe itself. Mm. You know, if we think about our evolutionary impulse, the sense of purpose that we have within us, it, it, it gives us a, a full spectrum of connection to all the purposes in life. Right? We can feel the purpose to survive and reproduce that's felt by amoebas. Yeah. We can feel sexual urges to, to reproduce that are felt by all life. But we can not only feel these biological urges, we can also feel higher levels of purpose uh, mm -hmm. in the sense of our, our striving for values, you know, for the beautiful, the true, and the good. Mm -hmm. And because, in a sense, our purposes are its purposes, uh, I, again, you know, I argue <laughs> that uh, the purpose of evolution is to grow toward ever-widening realizations of the beautiful, the true, and the good. Mm. You know, this is, in a sense, first realized and articulated most succinctly by Alfred North Whitehead, the philosopher. Mm, I was about to ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He defines evolution in a cons consciousness-centric way mm -hmm. as an increase in the capacity to experience what is intrinsically valuable. Hmm. So if you think, you know, what is yeah. evolution, right? An increase in the capacity to experience what is intrinsically valuable, it seems completely out in left field compared to what the current thinking on evolution is within science and academia. Yeah, right. But Whitehead had that understanding that, you know, in a sense, evolution is the emergence of consciousness. And uh, for Whitehead, who uh, had this theory of, of what's called pan-experientialism, mm -hmm. or what Ken Wilber would refer to as, you know, universal interiority, uh, that the motion of evolution is, is, is toward greater and greater levels of experience. Mm -hmm. You know, and indeed, you know, matter, whether that has any experience at all, uh, is certainly controversial. Whitehead said it did, but I'm not sure whether I ascribe mm -hmm. to that theory. But certainly life has experience. And, uh, and humanity has a much deeper and richer uh, yeah. ability to experience, especially that which is intrinsically valuable. Because yeah. I think Whitehead also understood that that which, which is intrinsically valuable is that which is most intrinsically real. You know, mm -hmm. that the real is not the matter or the energy. You know, the real is... Is, is the ontological quality of the universe? Hmm. It's, right. it's meaning. In yeah, sense. yeah, and, and but you know, not just not just you know information meaning, but but a higher level of of, of this this idea of goodness or, hmm. or truth or beauty. I mean, I use the rubric of beauty and truth and goodness to talk about values and quality uh, because it, um, it, it it it's a good way of understanding these and, and training your mind to think about these values as a system. You know, that is quality is not just simply, you know, a thing. Um, I have a chapter in the book where I talk about uh, the nature of values, right? So um, pre-modern philosophers like St. Thomas Aquinas held that values were objective. You know, mm -hmm. he had a kind of platonic theory of value, that values were these archetypal universal forms and that the, the phenomena of the world were um, 
expressions of these values. Um, but then uh, with um, the Enlightenment philosophers and modernity, mm-hmm. uh, the idea of objective value was sort of rejected as being uh, too metaphysical. Hmm. And then we had a, a turn toward the other direction, beginning with um, Hume, uh, where values were seen as merely subjective, right? That values are just whatever we project on the world, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Hume thought that, that ideas of like morality or aesthetics were you know, convenient and necessary for the functioning of society, but ultimately a fiction. Because we, you know, we're just, we, we, it's only beautiful because we think it is. It's not beautiful objectively. And that, in the evolution of philosophy, led to a, uh, an even more staunch rejection of the idea of, of objective value as being unacceptably metaphysical mm. by the existentialists, uh, you know, who said not only is, is value subjective, but we have a responsibility to take responsibility for the values that we are going to project on the world. We're not mm-hmm. going to just receive our values from religion or from established you know, cultural institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be brave enough to make meaning and make value according to our own lights, mm-hmm. you know, which is in a sense one of the, um, one of the central insights of, of Nietzsche. You know? mm-hmm. uh, so we've kind of been on this dialectic, an objective value, you know, completely objective no, it's subjective. It's just in, mm-hmm. inside of us. Now we're coming back to Well, in, in the book, yeah. I argue that values are neither wholly uh, subjective nor wholly objective, that they're better conceived as that which brings subject and object together in the course of seeing and being seen. Hmm. Like a good analogy is like electricity. You know, electricity isn't really you know, a thing you can get a hold of. And in order for it to manifest, it needs a negative pole and a positive pole. Hmm. It kind of, you know... Yeah. Uh, connects the two. And that's what that's kind of a, a way we can begin to get a sense of the slippery concept of what values are. We we make them because they require a subjective pole, but we also find them because they require an objective pole. But the reason they're not simply objective is that values require a level of consciousness to appreciate them. In other words, as our consciousness evolves, we're able to discover and, and, and experience in increasing measure by stages um, the ontological quality of the universe. So it depends on consciousness. In, in other words, consciousness brings values through because values are, are a, um, they're, they're in some ways the, 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 the leaking through of the infinite into the finite. Hmm. You know, as Ramana Maharshi said, you know, that, is the, 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 that the infinite doesn't enter the phenomenal world. The phenomenal world becomes transparent. And the finite, the infinite that's already there becomes visible. Just like, a, you know, if, if a, if a, a movie is being projected on a screen and all of a sudden the movie goes blank and you can see the screen. Yeah. 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 And so, um, so values, I argue in the book, and I have a little chart that shows you know, the objective pole and the subjective pole. And that's why values are not simply given. You know, Wilbur has talked a lot about the myth of the given mm-hmm. recently, and um, I, you know I think that's a very important thing for for uh, um, those who want to use integral philosophy to keep in mind, because uh, because values are very important to evolution. Indeed, they're the purpose of evolution, as I argue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but values are mediated by our consciousness the level of our consciousness, mm-hmm. which is itself mediated by the stage of culture at which we make meaning, mm-hmm. right? So it's a well-established principle of integral philosophy that there's these stages of development. And while we don't want to treat them 
too uh, strictly or recognize them as forms of architecture. They're more like an ocean current. Mm-hmm. Um, these stages of consciousness do constitute a, um, a, a vertical dimension of evolution because um, what makes higher worldviews more, more evolved than um, earlier ones is that they have a more inclusive frame of reference. Mm. So, for example, postmodernism, we can argue, is, is in a sense more evolved than modernism because its values are, uh, are more inclusive. You know, mm. those who are worthy of moral consideration, there's a larger circle drawn, mm. you know, including animals and especially people who have been marginalized or exploited, you know, in the past. So, uh, this idea of um, evolving consciousness, evolving culture, there are many lines of development. You know, you can't sort of say, well, it's, it's an upward escalator to the good. Right. <laughs> um, Sounds too easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and part of the way to understand how, in a sense, modernism, for example, um, can represent more cultural evolution than, than any worldview before or since, and yet still be the biggest threat to humanity and the world that's ever emerged in history, mm-hmm. is that there is this, in, in, in the course of cultural evolution, there is what, uh, uh, what Jürgen Habermas, philosopher, has described as the dialectic of progress and pathology. Hmm. In other words, when, when a new worldview emerges, it, it brings uh, a new higher level of values. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, when, when uh, the move is made in cultural evolution from a traditional worldview to a modernist worldview, the value of truth um, emerges from the, the level of mythic. In other words, the traditional level, the truth is what's true in Scripture. And while there may be deep and everlasting truths in all mm-hmm. forms of Scripture, there's also lots of myth in there, like the myth of a six-day creation, for example. When we, when we move to a, a rational or modernist scientific um, level of truth, then, then truth is more, is, is, is scientific truth. You know, we exchange the truth of scripture for the truth of science, mm-hmm. and uh, that leads to a more inclusive, uh, a more true form of truth, right? But even though every new emerging stage has, uh, has new um, levels of value, more inclusive or more, you know, uh, higher quality values, if you will, mm-hmm. Um, it also has uh, accompanying those very advances pathologies, which are related directly to the improvements. In other words, the, 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 the pathologies, pathologies are woven together with the progress. So, um, uh, for example, the progress achieved by modernism is achieved through scientific rationality, through the values of individual initiative, you know, striving to mm-hmm. achieve upward mobility and you know status and material, and those same individualistic meritocratic values that, that characterize modernism's advance also have directly tied to them uh, the exploitation of people, the exploitation of the environment, uh, uh, un- technology unrestrained. By any kind of morality, yeah. you know, we have the horrific weapons of mass destruction that, that are produced by modernity, um, not because modernists are evil, but because that pathology can't help but be part of um, of the very advances that modernism achieves, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Same with postmodernism, right? Postmodernism, as a defined term in integral philosophy, uh, is this worldview which has many various currents, right? It emerges beyond modernism. But one of the things that ties all forms of postmodern culture together 
is there an agreement regarding the, um, the problems of modernism, right? In other words, the hallmark of postmodernism is anti-modernism you know, mm -hmm. in various forms. And so one of the advances of postmodernism is that it rejects so much of the values of modernism. It rejects consumerism. It, it rejects materialism. Um, it rejects excessive hierarchy and uh, reclaims uh, an egalitarian, communitarian, multicultural, mm -hmm. or relativistic right. point of yeah. view. And that achieves evolutionary progress. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it, it is more inclusive. It is more compassionate. It is a sort of a higher, uh, in some ways, it's the most evolved form of large culture that's yet to appear. But attached to those very advances are, uh, you know, for example, although you, get, you, make, you can make progress by having relativism and, 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 and for example, in spirituality, um, instead of just having one dogma or one creed, within postmodern spirituality, there's a tremendous pluralism. Right? Mm -hmm. you know, all paths you know, are, are appreciated and respected. And, and indeed, a thousand flowers can bloom within, uh, so to speak, within uh, progressive spirituality. Right? There's all mm -hmm. these different uh, forms of spirituality from the shamanistic to you know, um, Advaita or, or Tibetan Buddhism. You know, these are reintegrated into modernist culture at a postmodern level. But the pathology that goes with that is that if you have complete pluralism and relativism, then your ability to distinguish degrees of excellence, comparative excellence, between mm. these different um, elements that are welcomed uh, uh, is significantly diminished, right? Mm. You know, and, and that we can see in the immaturities of New Age spirituality. You know, progressive spirituality may have a lot of great ideas, but so far it hasn't really been able to exhibit any kind of significant leadership to the society. In other words, mm. it, 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 while perhaps 20% of the American populace makes meaning at a postmodern level, progressive spirituality is still ridiculed by the mainstream. You know, it still is seen as somehow, uh, you know, not credible or too flaky, I mean, mm -hmm. at least within academia, science. So we're talking about the progress and the dialectic, as it's called, of mm -hmm. progress and pathology. And a good way of understanding why this is the case, why is it that every new advance has these new problems that come along with it that are woven together with the very advances that, that are made. And that, I think, is because <clears throat> evolution is, is, occurs through a push and a pull. Right? There's these mm. two forces, right? Yeah. The push are the problems. You know, how can we improve? You know, what is cultural evolution? It's the improvement of the human condition. Mm -hmm. And how can we um, improve things? Well, it depends on what's wrong. Right? What's wrong it creates the agreement among people and, and, and creates solidarity within a worldview about solving the problems. Mm -hmm. So the problems that are, that, are, that are perceived define the opportunities for advance. That's the push. Mm. But the pull is the, is the, is the sort of the vision of a better way, you know, the sort of the, the, the sense that we, we, we can make the world a better place, not only by solving these problems, but by embracing a higher conception of what's beautiful, true, and good. Mm. So you have this push and this pull, but because the opportunities for advancement are defined by what's wrong, typically by the accumulating pathologies of the previous worldview, what's wrong with the current society, right? Mm -hmm. um, modernism, in a sense, was able to emerge because of what was wrong with medieval Europe, right? What was wrong with feudalism. Mm -hmm. Likewise, postmodernism evolved, you know, in the 60s because of what was wrong with mainstream American society. 
And so because the direction forward is defined by what's wrong, that in a sense, um, you're sort of trying to get away from what's wrong and, and, it, and it, it means that the trajectory of your progress is going to be, um, in a sense, pregnant with latent pathologies of its own. Mm-hmm. Reactionary. So, yeah, you're reacting to what's wrong and so yeah. you're going to have, you're going to be getting, trying to get away from what's wrong and that's going to, in a sense, c- cause what's right to be somehow colored or tainted by the previous wrong. Hmm. A good way to understand it is like a sailboat tacking against the wind, huh. right? Sailboat can't sail directly into the wind. It has to advance obliquely, right? You know, go this way and it has to turn that back that way. And that's the way this dialectical progression of worldview stages unfolds. Hmm. You know, we're, we're, as a society, we're, you know, we're, we're sailing this way, we're sailing toward individualism. Okay, in, excessive individualism has its own pathologies. Hmm. We have to tack back and sail toward community. But if you go all the way to community, then it becomes, you know, oppressive, communistic, yeah, whatever. Inside, to, yeah. Well, the individual is being stifled. They have to yeah. tack back, right? Yeah. So that's that kind of tacking back and forth. And I think that the dialectic itself, right, which has been oversimplified as thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. People can get a handle on it that way. Mm. Um, that, in a sense, is created by the master patterns of evolution itself. Mm. I mean, I argue in the book that, that the dialectic is indeed the master pattern of evolution because it's almost like a um, fractal, self-similar seed crystal, if that doesn't sound too new age, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that, that animates all of evolution. And so a, a, another way of understanding that is that evolution at every level is characterized by indestructible polarities, you know, male and female competition and cooperation, mm-hmm. freedom and order, individual and community. These are all versions of, I think, the larger pattern of the universe, which is infinite and finite. Mm. Right? Infinite and finite are the ultimate thesis and antithesis. Right? Yeah. And that because the universe is created out of that essential duality, uh, evolution itself is, is the movement towards synthesis. Evolution is, is the movement of the finite back toward the infinite. Because that's what evolution is doing at the most wide scale, that same pattern is refracted fractally at every level of yeah. evolution. So whenever we see a conflict, whenever we see an indestructible polarity like individual and community, at, at earlier levels of evolution, the natural tendency was to think about it in a binary way. In other words, you know, if, if we're too individualistic, then we have to quash competition and embrace you know, community. If we're stifled by community and oppressed by conformist consciousness, we want to break out and allow the individual to be free. Mm-hmm. And so because we're tacking back and forth within these indestructible polarities, you know, going from one side to the other, you know, this, this creates this, this dialectic of progress and pathology. Mm-hmm. But if we're able to understand that these polarities are not problems to be solved, they're systems to be managed, right? That, you know, individual and community we want to, it doesn't mean like you want to split the difference equally or just sort of balance them yeah. in a static way, right? Sometimes, you know, progress is achieved by freeing the individual or honoring the individual. Sometimes progress is achieved by uh, uh, emphasizing, you know, the community and trying to cooperate. But if we understand that every one of these conflicts, every one of these indestructible polarities is itself a system of evolution, a little elevator of evolution, you know, uh, uh, every thesis and antithesis is a transcendent synthesis waiting to be achieved. 
Hmm. You know, some of these dialectics, I mean, I don't want to sound too doctrinaire about it. I mean, some, some thesis and antithesis are sort of, you know, in a sense permanent. And they're, you know, the synthesis may, may be, you know, thousands of years before we are able to get a synthetic grip on that polarity. Mm -hmm. But if we begin to understand these worldviews themselves as, you know, kind of uh, bouncing back and forth within, within this, and if we begin to see that indestructible polarities are the pattern of evolution and the opportunity for improvement, even though this is rather conceptual and abstract, um, we still can begin to see that, uh, that evolution has a pattern, it has a dynamic, it has a purpose, um, and uh, our uh, ability to recognize what's intrinsically valuable is, mm -hmm. is the purpose of our being here. <laughs> you know, Whitehead's saying of that evolution is, is an increase in the ability to experience what is intrinsically valuable, that not only explains what our lives are about, mm -hmm. right? It explains the activity of the entire universe. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, again, you know, what is the universe? It's evolution itself, really. You know? Yeah. That's great. Um, that uh, reminds me even of Sri Aurobindo's understanding, just as you're describing that, I'm starting to make connections yeah. in my own readings and mm -hmm. Um, I think it was in Synthesis of Yoga, he was saying, you know, the West has its own yoga of science and materialism, and the East has this yoga of deep exploration of consciousness, and the two have to come together in a synthesis Indeed. to, um, you know, usher in the new era, things like that. So it's yeah. yeah. great well, sort of did what he taught. He himself was a synthesis. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the divine and then the, the imminent and right. the whole process. Right. Um, and even like uh, I've been studying Jung lately. I've been looking at alchemy, and that whole idea is the union of opposites, the union of the infinite and the finite. And um, I don't know if you if you've studied alchemy specifically, but they have the images of the male and the female uh, sim symbolizing the two polarities coming together in that androgynous being, or sometimes in other forms, other symbols. I mean, a little bit more. Uh, I don't want to call it archaic, but like deeply mythical in their in their imagery and so on, but you can even see that they are tapping into some kind of process too with the idea of taking lead and turning it into gold, which is a symbol for, you know, the lead and material mud that we're made out of and turning it to something divine and just bringing them together though, not leaving the material and going off into heaven, but actually converting heaven on earth. So yeah, yeah. it's, it's yeah. a... Well, that's why in a sense, I mean, yeah. That's a, an old idea, like the yin and the yang, which mm -hmm. are ancient. They've been recognized by sages, mm -hmm. you know, for thousands of years. But uh, because we now have a better grip on evolution itself, because the science of evolution has added a dimension of depth, mm -hmm. pardon me, to uh, to our understanding of these ancient um, archetypes, mm -hmm. we are rediscovering them at a higher level. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we mean, even though they're ancient. Uh, you know Lao Tzu and you know these other sages who mm -hmm. recognize the, the you know the polarity dynamics of the universe. We can now see that it's not just the cyclical polarity, but it's it, it's cyclical and progressive. That's what the spiral represents. Mm -hmm. You know, it's circular, yeah. it goes around and around, but it's getting higher and higher yeah. too. I think Teilhard said it intensifies right as as it goes. Well, it turns in on itself. Yeah. You know, in other words, the. Um, Terrence has a great quote uh, that I use in the book that the, um, <clears throat> the, the, the individual and the universal uh, move toward each other and uh, uh, have their culmination in each other. Hmm. You know, that's the, represented by the white being in the center of the black and vice versa in the yin-yang symbol. Hmm. I mean, it's yeah. also perfect. But yeah, I think what's new, I think it's not just a rediscovering of the perennial philosophy, although that's an element of it. That's part of the dialectic, right? Yeah, Re coming back <laughs> yeah, at yeah, we're not coming higher back, level. But we're also getting wiser, mm -hmm. we're also getting 
um, our ability to experience what's intrinsically valuable is deepening. You know, it is more inclusive. It is more uh, 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 true and good and beautiful. Hmm. So, um, uh, I think that's what evolution's spiritual message is. You know, evolu- I mean, as I argue in the book, evolution has a spiritual teaching. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't replace other forms of spiritual teaching. It uplifts them. You know, in other words, it, 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 it fine-tunes them because it is a scientific, you know, in a sense, doctrine. Uh, and while evolution has been used as a weapon against spirituality, really, you know, since Darwin, ironically, or perhaps evolutionarily, <laughs> predictably, uh, evolution is too powerful. I mean, even though materialism has made good use of it in its cultural mission of vanquishing superstition and myth, evolution is too... St- it, it vanquishes all myths. It doesn't just vanquish the, the mythic level myth of creationism. It is now beginning to vanquish the modernist myth of materialism mm-hmm. because it has a spiritual message that, that um, materialists have been trying to explain away and the more we learn about evolution, the more we come to recognize philosophically its significance, mm-hmm. um, the more it's clear that the universe is more than matter in motion, that the universe indeed has purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, again, not an intelligently designed, externally controlled kind of purpose, but a purpose that emerges from within. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and so you know, the freedom that goes with this ability to see values, in other words, our free will is almost like an organ of perception for values. Because... You know, if we if we didn't have if we weren't free to choose, if everything was predetermined, there wouldn't be any ability to um, uh, to perceive what was valuable. Because if you can't, you know, goodness, the ultimate value in a way, um, requires a choice. If there's nothing to choose, there's nothing to value. And mm-hmm. if, if you're not free, you can't choose. It's not your choice. So that's a kind of a you know, it's a difficult concept to get. But if if I can, if I can just assert here that that that. You know, we, we perceive light through our eyes and sound through our ears, and we perceive value through this this metaphysical possession we have called free will, our personal agency, mm-hmm. um, and that uh, that 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 same freedom is what helps us achieve higher and higher levels of improvement. You know, humans are free to recognize new horizons of value, right? Mm-hmm. Even Emile Durkheim, the pioneering sociologist within the um, 19th century, recognized that human needs can never be satisfied. That they, <laughs> that, you know, that, and it's not just because we're greedy, but it's because we have, we're, we're free. And, and the more, then as our, our needs are fulfilled, our consciousness evolves to higher levels and recognizes new depths of intrinsic value we can strive for, mm-hmm. right? So modernists are striving for material success, but many postmodernists are striving for self-actualization, mm-hmm. right? And so, as soon as you, you know, as soon as your material needs are taken care of, and you live in relative wealth and you're educated, then that opens up the ability to say, "Wow, I, I need more than simply a, a, a you know, a, a materially rich lifestyle. I need personal spiritual development." Mm-hmm. Um, and then, at, at the postmodern level, as we begin to achieve some level of self-actualization and personal development, then we need that awakens a higher level of need to try to give back to the world, to try to make the world a better place. Hmm. So evolution's spiritual message is found in the way that it progresses. Hmm. I mean, progress itself is a, you know, a, um, a, uh, a concept that has been rightly rejected because there mm-hmm. were these right. earlier yeah. forms of, of, of notions of progress, cultural progress, that were tainted by ethnocentric ideas of cultural superiority. 
like in the 19th century, Europeans thought they were more progressive than the developed world. Mm-hmm. I mean, and in some ways they were, but be- because that they had an ethnocentric notion of their superiority, they didn't appreciate the dignity and um, uh, and uh, uh, sort of rights of the developing world. Mm-hmm. Um, that led to a justification of colonialism, mm-hmm. right? right? And because yeah. colonialism was so much associated with, with it, it was wrong, it was oppressive, um, the idea that some cultures were more evolved than others, we had to have a punctuation mark. We had to sort of reject that for a while. Yeah. You know, so in sociology and anthropology and in postmodern discourse in general, notions of progress and culture were rejected as being racist or ethnocentric mm-hmm. for good reason. Mm-hmm. Right? Same with notions of progress in biological evolution. Um, these were uh, uh, initially used as a way of of a kind of justifying an earlier Christian notion of humans as the caretakers of the planet and the dominion, you know, over, over all creatures, mm-hmm. which led to the abuse of the environment and animals. In other words, nature was regarded as merely instrumentally valuable to humans. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that, that was a twisted form of environmental ethics because we're not going to be able to protect the environment if we don't assign to it some intrinsic value of its own. It's not just mm-hmm. good for human use. It's good in itself. Right. So... You know, progress was tied up with these earlier um, these earlier misconceptions. Mm-hmm. So think, there was a time when yeah. progress was out the window, right? To get rid of it, there is no progress, right? But of course, that's also wrong because evolution does progress; it does become more valuable in consciousness itself. Mm-hmm. Consciousness becomes more valuable as it is able to see and experience values. You know, values just like life makes matter count. Right, mm-hmm. humanity, you know, and their and our ability to recognize the beautiful, the true, and the good at a higher level. We, in a sense, make life count. Yeah. And it, it confounds scientists that you know life emerges. We're still uh, fascinated by that possibility. Like, how did it happen? And we search for it constantly with our telescopes. You know, uh, I think the Kepler telescope is looking for Earth-like worlds. We're just so intrigued by that. Yeah. How did it happen? Why did it happen? How often does it happen? Right. It's, it's a. It's kind of like. Well, and for years, for 50 years and for billions of dollars, the you know, scientists have been saying, if we just get the soup right, life's going to emerge. <laughs> <That's> you <know? laughs> I mean, and there were some in the 50s you know, that they did create amino acids by getting mm-hmm. the soup right. And so they think, oh, wow. You know, so that was hugely promising and exciting, but they haven't gotten past amino acids. So there's something about the emergence of life that, that science can't reproduce. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's promissory materialism. It's just a matter of time. That's mm-hmm. what they say, but I'm not sure. I don't think the Big Bang... The first Big Bang, or the second Big Bang, the emergence of life can be explained, you know, in a materialistic, mechanistic way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third Big Bang, as you might say, the emergence of humanity, certainly can't be explained by, you know, Darwinian mechanism of natural selection. Uh, you know, something more is coming from something less, and random mutations just can't get us all the way there. Yeah, and it's sort of like it explodes into a new order all of a sudden on the geographic timeline. Thirty thousand years ago, all of a sudden, you know, we're just traveling across the world we have culture we have art we have religion like that right that quickly and and the brain our brains were the same as they were a hundred thousand years right. before yeah but all of a sudden we have consciousness at a higher level mm-hmm. as as you know pr- proven by the artifacts musical instruments you know mm-hmm. body ornaments sophisticated weapons mm-hmm. you know this just come out of nowhere i mean so to speak so to speak yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah. so evolution spiritual message is found in the way that it progresses and our understanding of progress itself um, requires that we not only have the vision of evolution itself from modernism, 
but that we have the moderating influence of, of postmodern insights. In other words, everything we're talking about is coming from an ins, you know a perspective that is a post postmodern perspective. It's um, it's a, uh, a a level of a, a worldview or a set of values or a perspective that um, that is is resting upon in a kind of a holonic way that it depends upon traditionalism, modernism, and postmodernism. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you were to remove the important discoveries and values and insights of any of those worldviews, then our worldview would collapse mm-hmm. because we're using those worldviews just like you know molecules use atoms and cells use molecules. You know, there's there's a transcendence and inclusion um, it, that isn't it, it is it's it's scalar or scalar, I don't know how to say that, but um, the the uh, this 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 chain of transcendence and inclusion um, that we see in biology, you know, and indeed cosmology continues in the realm of consciousness and culture through these worldview structures. Mm-hmm. So this postmodern worldview that we need um, to uh, disabuse us of these immature notions of progress. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it is it helps us then reclaim the notion of progress at a more sophisticated level that's not ethnocentric and that isn't um, anthropocentric, uh, you know, overly so, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and so once we kind of have a better understanding of progress in culture and progress in biology and progress across the board in all forms of evolution, then we can see that evolution is, is indeed purposive, mm-hmm. but not purposive in a deterministic way. That is, there's freedom in this purpose because the, the evolutionary creatures themselves are called upon to realize determine that. what's yeah. beautiful, true, and good. You know, in a sense, that's the beauty of the understanding of the finite universe is that this, this motion of evolution within the finite toward its original level of perfection. You know, in other words, the thesis of the infinite, you know, the, the timeless, eternal, mm-hmm. um, beginningless, universal level of evolution, which we might... I, that's wrong, not level of evolution. I mean, you know, again, I, I really ought to bring in a whole host of arguments to justify what I'm saying, but let me just assert, right, that um, many forms of spirituality understand the absolute or, or the beginningless nature of the source of creation as, as sort of the infinite. You know, before, we now know there were the, the finite universe had a distinct beginning, mm-hmm. right? 13.7 billion years ago, time and space itself came into existence, you can use string theory and mathematics to posit, you know, multiverses that existed or simultaneously exist. But, you know, in a sense, that's just a, a kind of materialistic theology, you know, masquerading as science. Yeah. yeah. But uh, setting that aside, the universe that we live in, our universe, and its time and space, you know, definitely began with a, you know, intense explosion 13.7 billion years ago. Mm-hmm. So asking what is before that is a time-bound tautological concept. You can't really ask what's before the Big Bang, you know, what's north of the North Pole kind of a question. Right. Yeah. But but still, you can penetrate um, our conceptual paradoxical limitations through a kind of a spiritual appreciation of that, yeah, there is a sort of the infinite cradling of, of the finite universe, mm-hmm. you know, if you look through the doors of perception, yeah, you know, those yeah, kinds of things. Yeah, well, and the out. Jewish mystics uh, in the Kabbalah really understood this. They had the concept of, of simsum, mm-hmm. where in the finite mm-hmm. universe is created by a contraction. You know that infinity contracts, or, or um, you know, is in a sense creates an empty space in which it removes perfection. 
You know, so when, you know, when perfection or infinity, when you remove um, infinity, you get space. And when you remove eternity, you get time. You know, when you remove uh, consciousness, you get matter. Mm-hmm. At least, you know, that's allegorical. And so if we can uh, uh, perhaps appreciate the spiritual teaching that the universe is infinite, but that the finite universe has a beginning, then we can begin to see that the finite universe doesn't just begin, it then evolves. Mm-hmm. And that the evolution that's occurring within the finite universe, I mean, here and in probably billions of other life worlds like ours, mm-hmm. um, there are these successive levels of emergence where something more keeps coming from something less to the point where uh, um, this third level of evolution, the evolution of consciousness and culture, emerges. Mm-hmm. And that's where um, we can begin. To, I mean, I've got a phrase in the book, you know, if we look at, at cosmological evolution, we might be able to see uh, within, for example, the fine-tuning of the anthropic principle. We might be able to see a kind of a purpose for evolution, mm-hmm. you know, that, 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 that the, um, the, the way that the periodic table of elements and the conditions of the Big Bang and all of the anthropic coincidences seem to point to a universe that is set up for life. So mm-hmm. there's a purpose for evolution. But then when we look at life, we can find purpose in evolution, right? The purpose is in life. Life has purpose. That, mm-hmm. that all this natural selection presupposes intentionality. Because mm-hmm. if life wasn't striving to survive and reproduce and fill every niche of, in, in the ecosystem, there wouldn't be any competition for natural selection to act upon. Mm-hmm. So we see purpose up for evolution and cosmological evolution, purpose in evolution and biological evolution. But then in the realm of consciousness and culture, we see pr- the purpose of evolution. Mm-hmm. Right now, and that mm-hmm. is the purpose that we feel within ourselves to strive to achieve um, our self-actualization, to mm-hmm. to not only experience what's beautiful, true, and good, but actually co-create it. Mm-hmm. You know that we—that's why we get to experience it at a higher level than any other form of life. Is that we can create it more thoroughly from every other, any other form of life, as indicated by this world of artifacts, you know, and culture that we've we've produced. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, I wanted to get to the dialectic just for a little bit longer um, because I had a question. In my studies, I've kind of come across the idea that in the past, um, well, all right, let me go back to the sure? big dialectic sure. of infinite and then the finite. So it's almost like you know the myth of Humpty Dumpty. Like this is perfect, divine, eternal consciousness, and then it breaks apart into the material universe or it generates the material universe. It forgets itself into the universe, that sort of thing. And then it realizes itself through the universe. I'm wondering if that itself, that that uh, movement from like unity to fragmentation to unity again to synthesis, is itself um, recapitulated or, or fractally discovered throughout history. So, like for instance, I've heard like Charles Eisenstein, for instance, is talking about it. People, some people who study myths, some people who study indigenous cultures, say that ancient societies had things that later societies, more materialistic, scientific, have lost. Or traditional societies had a sense of belonging and community that once you pop that bubble with individualism, materialism, yeah, we're, we've advanced, and you know, we understand the material world more, but we've lost something. And we have to find a new way to discover community, a new way to discover meaning in a material universe, in an individualistic universe, to come back together again. So I guess uh, this is sort of a nuanced question, but in the dialectic, um, is there a, a macro dialectic, like let's say at the beginning of, of the human story with shamans and indigenous cultures and that kind of consciousness that was definitely more spiritual, more 
Owen Barfield called it uh, the original participation. So they had this kind of animistic view of the world where meaning was intertwined with matter, and they didn't really just have a way to distinguish those two. And now we're at another end where we're understanding the material universe, but we don't really believe, at least as far as mainstream science goes, that meaning is really out there at all. It's really what we project onto the world or how we make sense of it. It's all in the brain and so on. So we have these two polarities. Do you think there is this macro synthesis going on where um, ancient societies have this inner understanding of the world, and we're only coming back to that now with this evolutionary perspective? I guess that's Absolutely. my question. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. a fabulous question. I mean, it's a teaching in itself, what you just said. So let me agree with you. <laughs> um, but let me also say that, that um, in this dialectic, this indestructible polarity that manifests in all these different ways, you know, one of them is simplicity and complexity, mm-hmm. right? In other mm-hmm. words, science embraces complexity as this seemingly convenient way to measure evolution materially. Mm-hmm. But the trouble is, is that complexity is in, in an indestructible uh, polarity with simplicity. Sometimes improvement or evolution is achieved by making things more simple. And so there, there's, there's, you know, in the simplest forms of human society, there's, there's a kind of a, um, a, a pure form of simplicity. Their lives were so simple, their consciousness was so simple that they did indeed possess a wisdom that we lost, mm-hmm. uh, that we have lost. And, and, you know, one of the characteristics of this dialectic of progress and pathology that we talked about mm-hmm. is that when not only do improvements bring new pathologies, but when you step forward, you always lose something, right? Mm-hmm. But that in itself is an opening for evolution, especially mm-hmm. at this evolutionary worldview. The evolutionary worldview, one of its main powers is, is its ability to reclaim, to go back and to recognize what was lost mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. more clearly and... and, and without being repulsed or embarrassed by the world, by the values that are associated with these earlier stages, we can begin to reclaim the wisdom, some of the essential values that we need from the traditional, mm-hmm. from the modernist, and from the postmodern. And I think that the, the postmodern initial trope toward revaluing shamanism and, and the tribal culture, mm-hmm. that's the beginning of that, mm-hmm. right? So although postmodernism may still vilify traditionalism and modernism, it has a romantic, you know, right. kind of idea of the tribal and wants to reclaim that. And indeed, it does a pretty effective job of bringing that back into a modern context and celebrating yeah. some of that lost anthropologists who talk well, about and, it. You know, got, you know the, 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 the shamans have these incredible sacraments, right, that, mm-hmm. that, that really do move consciousness, like ayahuasca, right? And that gets to be discovered. It's like a technology of, of the shamanistic tribal level that gets to be reclaimed and make postmodernism mm-hmm. more powerful. Mm-hmm. But then that process continues with the evolutionary worldview where we reclaim and, you know, hopefully without too much romanticism, we reclaim not only the shamanistic and the tribal, but then we reclaim warrior, we reclaim traditional, we reclaim modern, we can reclaim the whole spectrum of consciousness. Mm-hmm. That Through a broad historical view. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, and by understanding this dialectic of progress in pathology, it allows us to get in close, mm. you know, because we can, because it's not just a matter of, um, of, of separating the good and the bad or, 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 you know, saying objectively speaking, sure, there were some good things about the traditional level of culture, you know, that, that we can reclaim. I mean, there's a certain amount of respect for traditionalism in some ways. But ultimately, for example, if you look at contemporary evangelical Christianity, it's repulsive to mm-hmm. people who are postmodern for the most part, you know, and for good reason, right? Mm-hmm. But at the integral level, you stop being repulsed or embarrassed by it, and you can see, okay, well, it's natural that they have these 
backward thinking and these sort of absolutistic, uh, you know, that, that is you're not as worried about a theocracy because you can see that that's never going to occur. I mean, unless there's some huge, you know, regression. In, mm-hmm. So you know, you're, you, you know that the idea that that you know Rick Santorum is going to be elected president is just not going to happen, right? So because you're not as afraid of traditionalism, you can begin to um, see that there are values that are traditional level values that are always going to have a traditional flavor, mm-hmm. right? You know, modesty, decency, you know, honesty, all these, all these sort of traditional values, you know, the, the, the strengths of traditionalism, the, the, the original value breakthroughs that help traditionalism emerge beyond the, the previous pre-traditional, you know, chaos, mm-hmm. no matter how much we want to affirm those values at a higher level, we can't affirm them without affirming traditionalism itself, mm-hmm. you know, to a degree, mm-hmm. right? Just on the opposite end, you know, modernism can't affirm the value of the environment without affirming postmodernism as a whole. Mm-hmm. You know, that is, the modernists like Thomas Friedman have been trying to say green should be the new red, white, and blue. But it's not working, right? In other words, there's still not support to combat global warming or, mm-hmm. or care about the environment because care for the environment doesn't emerge until postmodernism emerges. And so because values cohere in sets, we can't just sort of pick and choose like a smorgasbord exactly. and say we're going to yeah. reject multiculturalism and you know, spiritual pluralism, but we're going to accept environmentalism. I mean, it might work a little bit. Mm-hmm. The values might trickle down a little bit. But ultimately, we're going to get the full impact of environmentalism from postmodernism or the full impact of, you know, decency from traditionalism. Mm -hmm. Then we've got to embrace the whole thing in a way. um, And the only way to do that is by identifying with it, Mm -hmm. by identifying with traditionalism more more completely. That's how we can get in close. We're not looking at it just from the outside. We're looking at it from the inside as well. Yeah, so sort of like you've been saying, not just the opposites, but between these two polarities, you can start to see you know, the unity kind of emerge and right. the synthesis emerge. Right. So just yeah. back to that master pattern, yeah. um, you know, I think that one of the fallacies of the, the idea of the fall is that we were in this perfect state and then we were cast out and now we're just trying to get back to that perfect state. So rather than progressing in evolution towards we're seeing a reason horizon, for why we, was we there want to fall? go back. Yeah. yeah. And you know that's you know again that's evolutionarily appropriate at the postmodern level. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. But at the at the evolutionary level we begin to say no, it's not just a cycle, it's a spiral. There mm-hmm. is progress. And so what progress is made by our evolution? We're not just going back to the beginning. We're going to a a new level that is similar to the beginning, but at a higher level. And so the best way to describe that is mm-hmm. um, that what the finite evolution of consciousness in the universe achieves mm-hmm. is a level of perfection that didn't exist before the, uh, the creation of time and space. Because what, what consciousness brings is an experiential concept of perfection. You know, in other words, perfection before time and space is, is an existential perfection. It just is, as it is, always, unchanging. But then time and space and creatures who were imperfect in time and space, as they evolve their consciousness and they achieve greater degrees of perfection. Indeed, you kind of needed that concept of the afterlife to make this fully stick, right? Because if you just die and that's it, then there's, you're hardly perfect, right? Yeah. But, but if, you have, if you can conceive of your consciousness evolving, you know, in a, universe, in a spiritual career that goes beyond this world and this life, then you can begin to see, yeah, our, our purpose in the universe is to gradually grow toward the perfection of our consciousness mm-hmm. and to, to, you know, go back to the infinite. But when we go back to the infinite, it won't just be a return to the beginning. In some ways it will, but in other ways we'll also be returning with the experience of becoming perfect. Mm-hmm. 
you know, that's what the creation adds to the creator. You know, mm-hmm. that's our gift to God is our, our experience of becoming perfect. You know, so existential perfection is supplemented and made even more perfect if you'll allow the tautology uh, through the addition of um, an experiential dimension of perfection that's achieved by creatures in time. Hmm. Great answer. <laughs> <laughs>